When we began our journey through Matthew in December, I mentioned Matthew sets up Jesus as the new Moses. The Gospel writer gathered materials and information in common with the other writers we know, Mark, Luke, and John, and shaped it in a way which addressed a specific problem or situation in his community. It's helpful to remember, as it is with when we read Paul, that these Gospels were written to a specific community by a particular person who was called by God to reframe the story of Jesus in a new way, which spread the Gospel in a particular area and amongst a unique people. In other words, there is a reason we have four Gospels. As we take a look at the Sermon on the Mount over the next several weeks, we need to hold some background information in our heads. First of all, The sayings which appear in the story are combined together by Matthew. They appear in Mark and Luke in slightly different versions, but in no other gospel are they united into one long oratory. So Matthew combined them all together as part of the structure of his gospel. He'll do it again with the Sermon on the Plain later in this book. Matthew does this because he has set up Jesus as Moses. In the beginning of the formation of his community, Moses went up the mountain at Sinai and received instructions for the people on how to live together as a newly freed people. Jesus similarly goes up to the mountain and delivers instructions on how this newly formed community of believers were to live together. These sayings are not intended to replace the existing law, but to reinterpret them in the context of Jesus' new community formed not on hierarchy or the established order of the political and social classes of his day. Instead, Jesus sought a world formed in mutual respect, where there was a place for all at the table. This community would need a new set of principles to guide them. Jesus sought to change the world through relationships built of respect and trust. The six passages we'll read over the next two weeks are some of the most difficult for us modern readers to wrestle with and reconcile with the Jesus we know and understand. In fact, I believe in my ministry, I've had more discussions on these six passages than any other. What are we supposed to do with a Jesus who gives commands which seem impossible? These demands Jesus places on his new community are called the antithesis because they are framed You heard it said, but I say. The writer Amy Jill Levine calls them the extensions, which I like better. In these passages, the first three of which we will address this week, Jesus teaches that being a follower of Christ requires a higher level of obedience than simply following the law. Jesus tells his people over and over again, it is not enough for them to walk the walk and say the right words and to show up to temple once a year. Jesus requires from them a change of heart, an addressing of the inside of themselves. Jesus recognizes the Ten Commandments were never really about the exact letters of the law. It's not enough to not have a graven image of an idol in your home if you worship the idol at the temple. But the Ten Commandments were given as a principle, a guidepost of how to live in community with one another. Jesus who is the living embodiment of the meaning which underlies the commandments, is showing what it means to internalize the rules and allow them to shape your innermost being. 
All six of these sayings are framed the same way. First, Jesus repeats the commandment. You've heard it said. Then he summarizes the rest of the Torah's witness about the application of this commandment before wrapping it all up by saying, but I say to you, and then making the commandment way more comprehensive. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you that if you'd held anger against another in your heart, you have already killed them. Well, there goes me then. Jesus lays bare here the way our sinful desires destroy our relationships with one another and with ourself. As soon as we act on any one of these impulses, we have broken any trust which we had. Jesus goes to an extreme here. I do not believe he means we should literally cut off our hand if it sins. But he does so in order to show us the danger which comes with allowing our sin to rule our hearts. Is sin a reality in our lives? Yes. Do we have to allow it to consume us or follow it down the path in which it leads? No. Each of the three acts which he uses as symbols in these passages are things which we do that dehumanize the other person and allow us to forget, even for a moment, that they are a child of God. When we allow our sin to guide us, we break the trust we had with each other because we no longer can find space for the other in our heart. When we hold anger in our hearts against another, we make it impossible to have any reconciliation or make peace, to find a way to coexist without causing more damage and destruction along the way. Unbridled, unrighteous anger leads us to say and do terrible things. Many of us grew up with the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But all of us know that this isn't true. Words hurt. Insults hurt. Our unresolved anger destroys us from the inside out. Which is not to say there is not a place for anger. Jesus yelled at the money changers and flipped the tables. And in about 18 chapters, he'll call Peter a fool to his face in direct contradiction to this particular saying, which may have led to Peter's behavior and denial shortly thereafter. They had been a broken trust. Anger and insult are destructive when it is unrecognized and unresolved. When anger bubbles up and we lash out at another in an uncontrolled and unfocused way, it breaks things. The danger of anger comes when we act on impulse or when we try to hide it and pretend as if it isn't there. The same principle underlies the prohibition against lust. In this case, Jesus points out lust is really the desire to have something which belongs to another, breaking two commandments in the process. Greed and coveting take root so quickly in our hearts, it's so easy to allow it to have a place, and it seems our culture is built on lust, greed, and coveting what we don't have. It's so easy today to let these ugly impulses take root in our hearts. I'll just take a look at these pictures or watch this video, we think. I'll just enjoy this show or that. I'll flip through a magazine at the doctor's office. I'll watch a YouTube video. And then you're off to the races buying products which guarantee perfect skin or the return of youth. And all of it, all of it is a kind of lust and coveting which takes roots in our hearts and does ugly things. I'm not saying you need to be a prude. You don't need to lock yourself in your house with no access to the outside world. I am saying, as Jesus said, 
the wanting of things you cannot have, the wanting of things which are other than what you are will destroy. It will destroy your heart. It will destroy your soul. You are enough. And you don't need the $300 face cream made from an exotic bird to be enough. Don't let those words of lust and coveting take root in your heart. It will destroy your trust in yourself. And finally, Jesus moves on to divorce. Again, Jesus goes into hyperbole here. Torah and the Jewish law and tradition did not forbid divorce. And Second Temple Judaism allowed for divorce in many circumstances where trust had been broken. What it had done was create protections through a legal paperwork called a divorce certificate, which showed the woman wasn't at fault, so she could remarry and have economic security. So we need to dig a little deeper here. Is Jesus saying divorce because of adultery is the only justifiable reason? The Greek word which we see here, which is used here and translated divorce, is better understood as abandonment. It was a process where the man could simply leave the house and never return, leaving the woman and any children in a place where they couldn't do anything. They were stuck. Without the divorce decree, she was still married. And so it appears the prohibition here is tied closely to the first one Jesus mentioned. Do not let your anger and hurts go unreconciled and unresolved. A quick side note. Every Christian tradition, except for a few, allow for divorce for various reasons. The Eastern Orthodox Church has had a place for no-fault divorce since the 3rd century, and it even has a patron saint for divorce, Queen Tamar. The point here is not to be legalistic, but to again recognize our relationships with one another are important, they are serious, and the ending of relationships are destructive. The end of any relationship is awful, and it hurts our hearts and can destroy our souls. But sometimes staying in the relationship is worse. Sometimes the marriage is more destructive than the ending of it would be, and I do not believe Jesus wants us to continue to choose destruction. Throughout the Bible, God's judgment, God's actions are reparative. God seeks to renew relationships, to revive the brokenhearted, to protect the vulnerable, and to resurrect us from the dead. God's Spirit allows Ezekiel to literally raise up a bed of dried bones. When we allow our impulses to lead us down destructive paths of unreconciled anger, broken hearts, and lustful, greedy souls, we destroy the precious trust we have. It is, in the end, the choices we make about what we allow to take root in our hearts and the way those roots spread through our souls, which allows us to destroy our relationships with one another and, in the end, to destroy ourselves. I'm not sure the last time anger did anything other than cause damage. I'm not sure allowing coveting and greed into our hearts does anything other than damage our souls. I'm not sure when we began to believe relationships could be disposable, but I know something precious breaks each time. God seeks to reconcile the world one to another, and it begins by acknowledging how we allow dangerous things to fill up our hearts and to show us the way our anger, our greed, lust, our envy allows us to judge ourselves, doubt others, and hold back from trusting where trust is needed and warranted. If we seek to change the world, 
If we seek to get on the boat with where God is moving in the world, bringing justice and peace to a broken and sin-filled place, it starts in our own hearts and in our own souls. Sin is a reality. You will have impulses which lead you astray. Jesus here reminds us that we are responsible for how we deal with them. And we have a choice about what we allow to take root. Anger, envy, greed, all it does is destroy if left to grow. Jesus invites you into a life of growth and renewal and strength and love. This is a harder path, but much more rewarding. The Christ who lives in you wants to grow and wants space to grow. But we have to make room for our, in our already full hearts. Amen. But I have found when that I don't believe that God is speaking, it's not because God isn't speaking. It's because God is saying words that I don't want to hear. Often God is calling us into places that are frightening because we are uncertain of what that future is. We know how to do this future. 
okay. I was going to say, well, but I think for most of us, the truth is okay. We're making it day to day. We know how to make this work. And so when God is calling us into something different, into something new, into a vision of a future, it's a little scary because we are uncertain of who we will be and where we will go. And so it is not that God isn't speaking. It's that we are not listening. Not really listening. Not Peter on the rooftop listening. Not Cornelius in the nighttime listening. We are not truly open to the voice of God. We are not ready to hear the voice of God, to see the vision which descends from heaven for us, for our future. We don't want to hear it. That future makes us uncomfortable. Or it's the opposite direction of where we thought we wanted to go. Or it's an unwanted future because it brings pain and loss. But that doesn't mean God isn't speaking into that future. Period. We simply have to acknowledge that we are in between. We are really good at pretending things are the way they used to be. It takes us a long time to realize that we have changed, that our life has changed, that the world has changed beyond what we are able to handle in the way that we used to, with the skills that we have already in our pocket. We are like the proverbial ostrich, with our heads in the sand of what we know. But the truth is, most of us are in some form of a liminal space all of the time. Whether big moments or small moments, we are in between. The past that was and the future that will be. We can pretend it isn't happening. We can ignore the future that God has planned for us, or at least drag our feet kicking and screaming into it. But in my experience, if God has a vision for you and a plan for you and a future for you, it's going to happen. God didn't ask whether you were going to be happy about it. So we need to find ourselves in this liminal place to recognize that we are in a thin place between the world and God, between earth and heaven, that if we let ourselves, we will find ourselves on the rooftop, gazing into the night sky, open for a word from God. God is speaking. 
We just have to be brave enough to hear it. 